Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. The Gist is brought to you by Points of Courage, a new business podcast from Hiscox about courage. Get Points of Courage wherever you find your podcast and learn more about what Hiscox can do for your business by going to Hiscox.com. That's H-I-S-C-O-X.com. Hiscox, encourage courage. And by Audible.com. With more than 250,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products, get a free 30-day trial and a free audiobook at audiblepodcast.com slash the gist. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, May 20th, 2016 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. You know, it is so often these days that you hear some news about Donald Trump that almost gets you there. Right? You're saying, well, that, that seems like it's trending towards the encouraging. But it winds up being so much worse than when it started. It's almost like the Trump candidacy itself. Hey, Trump's going to run. That'll be entertaining. Trump's going to win. That's extremely disappointing. Like, take this news that we've heard in the last couple of weeks about Trump getting intelligence briefings. I mean, we'd all like Trump to be getting more intelligence. And I certainly would like him to be more brief on the stump and answers about policies he doesn't know about, or even in endorsing his own university. We're going to have professors and adjunct professors that are absolutely terrific, terrific people, terrific brains. Terrific. So Trump getting intelligence, Trump getting brief, those are good, but Trump getting intelligence briefs, we all might die. And then last night in another Trump-related event, we heard Trump was helping Chris Christie retire. That's great. I mean, I just read this in the Daily News. Being Donald Trump's lapdog has not helped Chris Christie in New Jersey, the Garden State governor who in recent months has skipped out on his gubernatorial responsibilities to campaign for Trump, is now facing the lowest approval ratings of his entire time in office, a poll released Wednesday showed. So Trump's going to help Chris Christie retire? Fantastic. Oh, wait, end of sentence. Trump's going to help Chris Christie retire his debt. Ugh. So Trump's doing a fundraiser for another guy. But you know what else he's doing? He's going to be fundraising big time for himself, which is something he said he wouldn't do. Here's NPR's political podcast. So he has uh, named a fundraising chair. Uh, He signed a joint fundraising agreement with the Republican Party. As candidates tend to do. Is this what you call a pivot? No, no, no. You don't call it a pivot. You call it and call him out for a flat-out contradiction. I don't want their money. I don't need their money. And I'm the only one up here that can say that. Hashtag contradiction, not pivot. Every time you see someone in the media claiming pivot, please hashtag and note that it's not a pivot. It's hashtag contradiction, not pivot. Don't allow anyone to get away with calling it a pivot. Trump and the RNC set up a fund, a mechanism that will allow him to raise $449,400, I think is the amount which is the right move in the game of politics, but it does expose his past statements as being hypocritical. And hypocrites don't pivot, they contradict. You want to be blunt, let's be blunt. 
On the show today in the spiel, I talk about good losers and the rigged process, two contradictory ideas, neither of which are really true. But first, it's the return of Matthew Dix, a man who wears more hats than a crowd at Fenway at a day game. He has efficiency advice for all of us. Starting a business takes guts. Many entrepreneurs risk big for rewards that aren't guaranteed. Hear some of their stories on the new podcast, Points of Courage, brought to you by Hiscox. The series captures conversations about the moments that encourage making the leap to start a business and how to approach the challenges that come with that. Hosted by Jessica Jackley, author, public speaker, co-founder of Kiva.org, the world's first crowdfunded microlender. Points of Courage is a powerful resource for active and aspiring entrepreneurs, for business owners, anyone who believes that nothing great is achieved without risk. Get an intimate look into the realities and rewards of running a business in America. Subscribe to Points of Courage wherever you get your podcasts, like where you get this podcast. And you can learn more about what Hiscox can do for your business by going to Hiscox.com. That's H-I-S-C-O-X.com. Hiscox, encourage courage. My next guest, Matthew Dix, is our returning champion, having been on The Gist probably more often than anyone who doesn't say if that is or isn't bullshit. And in the capacity that he's been on, it's as a master storyteller telling you how to tell stories, also telling stories of his life. Now, maybe you gleaned from some of those stories just how interesting Matt is. I uh, once dubbed him the most interesting man in the world. But one of the things that makes him interesting is his breadth of interests and not just interests, occupations, real paying jobs. So Matt, when people say, what do you do for a living? You say, that is a challenging question. (laughs) I play golf and I'm often like in a threesome and we get another person and they ask me it, you know, by the third hole. So what do you do for a living? And I always think to myself, because by that time they've ruled out professional golfer. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, So I always say, well, I've been a wedding DJ the longest. Okay. I've owned a DJ company for 20 years. That's interesting. But you're the main thing, what takes up most of your time is public school teacher. Right. I'm also a school teacher. I think why you were on this show and maybe what has given you most acclaim, actually, it's probably the public speaking or is it the novel writing? See, it's tricky. I, yeah. I mean, I have four novels and one of them is published in like 25 countries and in an international bestseller. But, you know, I just had a former student who I taught in 1999. She lives in Australia and in a conversation with her. The guy in Australia said, hey, I was just listening to this radio show, and I heard this storyteller named Matthew Dix. You should totally hear him. And the girl said, he was my teacher in second grade back in 1999. So I don't know which one makes me more um, not really that famous, but uh, but those are jobs of mine as well. And those are current jobs. I mean, we've talked about your past and managing McDonald's and all that stuff. Do you have any other current paying jobs? I mean, not that that isn't enough. I write a column for a magazine. Uh-huh. I do a lot of public speaking in terms of like inspirational talks and um, I teach storytelling to people and I work with corporations Mm -hmm. to help them sort of target their message better. So those are jobs. I'm also a minister. So I I marry people and I'll do like an occasional baptism or uh, those kinds of ceremonies as well. That I'm not going to say fake, but that kind of easy, easy to get accreditation online ministry. Yes, it was very easy to get that accreditation, but it applies in 38 states, Mike. Okay. So how often do you do a baptism? I've only done a couple of those. I marry two or three couples a year. Do you feel bad that those children are going to hell? (laughs) 
I know that those parents put their faith in me. Yeah. And that's all that matters. So this is what I want to talk to you about. Organization, um, efficiency. How, how do you do it? Maybe that's too broad a question, but I'm sure by the eighth hole, someone's got to ask you that. Right. I get this question a lot. I think the first thing that I always begin with is an idea that time is my most valuable commodity. And I don't, I think people say it, but don't really believe it because they'll tell me their time is the most valuable. And then they'll go watch an episode of Friends that they've already watched three times. And they'll tell me that's a good use of their time. There are subtleties. Marcel, you don't realize what he's doing in the background in some scenes. (laughs) All right, I guess. But what I say is I live my life as if I am the 100 year old version of myself. So when I make a decision, I don't ask myself. I think the idea of living in the moment is a terrible idea. Yeah. If I lived in the moment, I would constantly be having sex and eating cheeseburgers. <laughs> Those are the only two things I would do. Unless the women of America also lived in the moment, in which case you might not be. Oh, there's still cheeseburgers. <laughs> right. <laughs> so either way, I'm winning. Uh, so instead of living in the moment, what I do is I ask the 100-year-old version of myself, the yeah. guy lying in his deathbed, what should I do in this moment? And invariably, he always tells me, watch less television, be more productive, get the things done that you want to get done so that when you're, you know, when you're dying, you don't look back on your life and say, boy, I wish I had watched a little bit more television over the course of my life. That's not something you're ever going to wish for. Other than avoiding the obvious time sucks, what does being more productive mean or being more efficient mean? So I think shortcuts? a lot of it has to do with planning. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I've been preaching a lot with people lately is I call it my meal plan. So I view food in two different contexts. One is it's fuel. And so if I am not eating with someone, it is only fuel. And that means the quicker I can eat it, and if I can eat it while I'm also moving, that is a great benefit. So if I'm going to sit down with friends or my wife, I'm going to spend as much time as I want eating that meal. But every single morning, I don't spend a moment on my meal. I go through a McDonald's drive through I order an Egg McMuffin, and I eat it on the way to work. I don't lose a minute. And if you're spending 30 minutes a day eating your breakfast, I'm always going to beat you because (laughs) I am spending zero minutes a day because it's on my commute. Is part of this what you once told me about oatmeal for lunch, which is that's all you ever do, so you never have to make a decision and that saves time? Well, my cholesterol was borderline high. So my uh, does this have anything to do with breakfast, do you think? No, it does not. <laughs> uh-huh. One egg on an egg McMuffin is right. perfectly fine. But my doctor tells me I have to lower my cholesterol. She says oatmeal is a great choice. So for a year, I eat nothing but oatmeal for lunch. Every single day, two minutes to cook, three minutes to eat. I'm done in five minutes. I'm moving while everyone else is sitting. I'm beating everybody. I go back to the doctor just last month, get my cholesterol checked, dropped 40 points. She looks at me and says, how did you do that? And I said... I ate oatmeal every single day for 365 days. And she says, like, if everyone would just do that, just (laughs) then we wouldn't have to put them on medication. Well, I ask you, Mike, what would you prefer, oatmeal every day for lunch or medication for the rest of your life? You've uh, you've mentioned one of my two bet noir foods. (laughs) So the other one is ricotta cheese and polenta is a third. I just don't like the consistency of those. I also believe, my wife will tell you that I sleep less than most people. Yeah. And that is true. Yeah. But what I like to argue is that I'm a more efficient sleeper than most people. How do you do that? So you want to make sure that when you're in bed, the only thing you're doing is sleeping. So lots of people tell me they get eight hours of sleep. But really what it does, it takes them half an hour to fall asleep. And then they wake up in the morning and they spend half an hour on their phone, staring at their phone and sort of slumbering. Science will tell you a lot of ways to train your body so that the moment you hit the pillow, you fall asleep. And if you ask my wife, I'm asleep within 30 seconds every single night without Mm -hmm. exception. So if you're not using a white 
noise machine. You're not even taking it seriously at this point. Because the white noise machine will not only filter out the sounds that will wake you up, yeah. but it becomes a trigger that puts you to sleep. It actually works for my dog. My dog comes up at night. She scratches on the carpet. When I turn on the white noise machine, she instantly falls asleep. She understands. Okay. I don't do anything in Does bed. Does she eat only oatmeal for lunch? No, she, she won't. She doesn't have a cholesterol problem, though. I don't do anything in bed except sleep. I don't watch TV. I don't read in bed. Yeah. I am training my body so that when I hit the bed, I do nothing but fall asleep. And then when the alarm goes off, I get out of bed instantly, yeah, letting my body know sleeping is over. We're now moving on with the rest of our lives. Once a month, I'll hit the snooze button. Yeah. And that's a bad day. It's a bad day. Yeah. Good. Now, I think that most people with the meals would say, okay, that's efficient. I don't want to live like that. I think maybe most people with sleep will find what you do pretty admirable. Because it's not a sacrifice what you're doing with sleep. You're just doing it better and smarter. Right. I mean, with the food, though. And sleep's so important. I think sleep's the most important thing. I think, I think sleep triggers everything else in the day and triggers your appetite and triggers the amount of exercise you get and all those things. Add them all up. That means health. It's very true. Yeah. And, and it is true that I just naturally sleep less than people. But I do believe that people are just super inefficient in the way that they sleep. And they lounge in bed rather than sleep in bed. I only sleep in bed. Now, so far, we haven't really talked about technology, but you're good at using it. You once showed me on, is it the Google email app that there's a, a hack where you can answer with one of four answers to most emails and this works and people think you're really attentive? Yes. <laughs> so if you have the Google app, um, the email app, it gives you three choices on the bottom. And what it does is it starts to learn who you are and what your responses are going to be. So oftentimes my responses are a one-button push. I've discovered that people spend way too much time writing an email and trying to craft it carefully, when really, if you think about the way we read our email, we just skim to the answer we're looking for. And so I don't sign my name to emails anymore. There's no salutation. It is just, here is the answer to your question. I appreciate that, and I don't think anyone is angry at me for not sort of flowering up my email with nonsense. So that one button push is tremendous. So people think of email as, you know, they, they can't get to inbox zero and it rules their life. And also they keep checking it. What, you just have willpower or you figured out a way to avoid those traps? Yeah, well, I'm at inbox zero. I'm a, definitely an inbox zero guy. If you get the Google app, the other thing that you can do is you can reschedule your email for a time that you want it. So when I get an email that has something to do with taxes, yeah. I just reschedule it to March 1st. All my tax stuff comes in on March 1st. So with one button, I can just schedule the email to the times and the days that I want it to arrive. And so I'm able to sort of control it that way. Now, a lot of what you do, it calls for creativity. Do you ever feel that you're giving the attention that you have to pay to crafting a story, for instance, or writing a book? Do you ever feel like you need to give that more time that you're giving it short shrift? Well, People look at tasks as enormous projects rather than little bits. A novel is an assemblage of sentences. But if my kids are in the bath with my wife or she's giving them a bath and I look at the clock and I know I have eight minutes, I will say to myself, let me see if I can write six good sentences in the next eight minutes in my novel. And I approach it that way. So I write in the cracks of my life. I find little bits of time. I love to listen to the people who tell me, I can only write in a three-hour block, and I need to have a latte, and I really like one of those Amazonian recovered wood tables. If you looked at the amount of writing that was like done in a World War I trench by yeah. like real people, yeah. I love telling them, if that's the way you have to write, then you are not a writer. Writers do not have the luxury yeah. of three-hour blocks. You're an Amazon wood recoverer who has a stylus yeah. uh, problem on the side, yeah. But with a novel, and maybe with a story, is there, that's good once you get to the point where six sentences will help you, but is there some pre 
um, strategizing global thinking? You know, do you make an outline and then you know your sentences will flow into that? Like, what do you, how do you get the big ideas and make and, and apply efficiency to that? I think that most of the creative work that I do begins in my brain. And I think that applies for many people, sort of the, the thought behind what you're going to do before you apply it to the page or be, before you apply it to the stage is very important. I never take a shower. I never go for a drive. I never go for a walk with the dog without a predetermined plan on what I will be thinking about during these times. So when I take a shower, I am always working on a story that I'm going to be telling on the stage. And I know what that story is. And I know what part of the story I left off last time. When I take the dog for a walk, this is where I get a little crazy. If the dog chooses to go left, I've been working on my one-man show. So when we go left down the street, I say, oh, okay, today I'm going to work on my one-man show. Where am I in the one-man show? I'm going to move it ahead. If the dog chooses to turn right, I'm going to think about the next novel that I'm supposed to be writing and sort of where I want to start that novel and which person I'm going to center that novel on. So I structure my life in such a way that I'm thinking about things actively, but in like a predetermined, planned way, so that when I actually am able to sit down in front of that computer for eight sentences, I've done the thinking that is required in order to get the eight sentences out. What about being present in the moment while parenting? Is part of your brain somewhere else always? No, the 100-year-old man saves me there, because every time my child comes to me, my daughter is now in first grade, every time she comes to me and she says, Daddy, will you pick me up? No matter what I am doing. The 100-year-old version of me says, someday, either this kid is going to stop asking or you're not actually going to be able to pick her up anymore. So you pick her up now so that you never regret not doing it. Matthew Dix, he does all this. He also plays golf, goes to Patriot Games, and has never seen more than one episode of Friends more than once. That's true. Correct? Never seen a rerun of Friends. I don't think I have. You're better for it. Thank you, Matthew. Thanks, Mike. Just Today is sponsored by Audible, and Audible is offering a free 30-day trial and a free audiobook today by signing up with audiblepodcast.com slash the gist. So what book to listen to? Well, how about something from guest and beloved guest of the show, Matthew Dix, novelist Matthew Dix. A bunch of his novels are available on Audible, like Something Missing and Memoirs of an Imaginary Friend. But I want to talk about the latest, The Perfect Comeback of Carolyn Jacobs. It's narrated by Cynthia Hopkins. I've been listening to it. I read the book. I've been listening to it. It's a uh, funny look at a subculture, the subculture of really passive-aggressive but incredibly intense PTA moms. So that's Matthew Dix, The Perfect Comeback of Carolyn Jacobs. You could listen to that or any of Audible's 250,000 other titles and spoken word audio products. Get a free 30-day trial and a free audiobook by signing up at audiblepodcast.com slash the gist. And now the spiel can't win for losing. Bernie Sanders should drop out and pave the way for Hillary Clinton, just like Fish should stop touring and allow Maroon 5 free access to the arenas they booked. Just like Ben and Jerry should pack it in with this whole ice cream thing and just recommend that people get their desserts from the frozen food section of a 7-Eleven. Just like I am out of iconic Vermont cultural exports. But think about Bernie. Think about who Bernie is. Think about what party he's been a part of every year before. 
this one. Think about the positions, the political positions he holds, the manner he expresses them, and how he combs his hair. Bernie Sanders does not care for the niceties and the politeies of stepping aside and allowing the powers that be to be. So fight on, Bernie, though you won't win. It doesn't matter. It's what having conviction means. And I think he is shaping the dialogue, contributing to that. And it should not be his primary concern that he, as Dana Bash of CNN implied, is hurting the overall Democratic cause. You said earlier tonight about Donald Trump, this is a man who does not have the demeanor, does not have the policy background or the ideas to become the president of the United States. So staying in this race, aren't you effectively making it harder for the Democrats to beat the man who you say would be so bad? Well, you have already conceded the race for me, and I don't accept that concession. Thank you, Dana, but I don't quite agree with you. So I say, Bernie, stay and fight. That said, well, yeah, and this whole thing has been a giant that said so far. His supporters, let's be fair, some of his supporters, kind of are, I don't know, a little bit poor sports. Like this guy who left a message for Nevada State Chair Roberta Lang. You should be ashamed and disgraced. You need to step down from that position because you are bad for America and bad for the Democratic Party. That was fucking bullshit today. You need to step down. You're a disgrace. The Nevada State Party actually has a drop box with some of the comments texted to and left on the voicemail of Roberta Lang after she made the dastardly and underhanded decision to actually enforce the rules of the party convention. Let's hear another. Oh, Roberta, 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 you old, old hag. Now, some of these we can't play on the radio, but we're not on the radio. We're a podcast. Let's have at it. You fucking stupid bitch. What the hell are you doing? You're a fucking corrupt bitch. My favorite one, and I'll play this one its entirety. Here's an entire message left to Roberta Lang. Actually, was that even a critique of Roberta Lang? I think that might have been the mating call of a humpback whale just slowed down a little. Can we compare that, Mary? Okay, here's the whale. And here's Roberta Lang's voicemail. Now, one or two or four or hundreds of death threats and disgusting messages don't mean all of a candidate's supporters are sore losers, but it sure does seem that a lot of Bernie supporters are sore losers. And Ted Cruz, man, was that guy a sore loser. A lot of the Republican establishment, they're sore losers. In fact, other than Scott Walker, who bowed out humbly, and Lincoln Chafee, who bowed out stealthily, almost all the losers have been sore, sorer than usual, sorer than they should be. Now, some blame, in the case of Bernie Sanders, the candidate himself. He's always going on and on about a rigged system. He makes his point this way. When we talk about a rigged system, it's also important to understand how the Democratic Convention works. We have won, at this point, 45% of pledge delegates, but we have only earned 7% of super delegates. All right, now let's just say for a second that superdelegates are, in fact, the absolute epitome of a rigged system, that nothing embodies unfairness as much as the fact that a Democratic elected governor of a state gets one out of 4,000 votes. Yeah, 
that Andrew Cuomo and Jerry Brown, the Democratic governors of the two states without which a Democrat could not win the White House, that they each get less than a four thousandth of the decision-making ability of the Democratic Party. Let's just say, yeah, that is a huge, huge injustice. What Bernie is arguing is that he is getting screwed because he's losing 45 to 55. That's why the system is rigged because he's losing 45 to 55, which is quite a significant margin. But you know, it's not as significant as another margin by which he's losing by more. That's why the system's rigged. And he's also picking the arguments that help his point, and he's leaving out the arguments like the fact that he does better in caucuses, the primaries, that hurt his point. Now, I do understand why people are arguing that Sanders isn't doing absolutely everything he can do to tamp down the soreness. But, you know, he's a candidate. That's fine. He's making the arguments about process that he thinks will help his candidacy and will help his message. They're not the best arguments, but a lot of candidates make not the best arguments. It's up to their supporters at a certain point to assess what's been going on, to assess that A, they're losing, and to further assess that the reason that we're losing has nothing to do with grand forces being against us, or even if it does, we'd be losing anyway. I have a theory. I have a theory that explains a lot of this sore loserness. There are no good losers anymore because it's almost as if no one loses anymore. How do you learn to be good at it if you never do it? Wait a minute, Mike. What about sports? Every sports season ends in a loss. All the other teams lose. One team wins. So if you're not a fan of that Super Bowl or World Series winning team, you lost. So you do have experience in losing. No, you don't. Not really. I mean, there is losing on the scoreboard, but the losing as experienced by a fan is totally different. Like if it's a close game, immediately after the team loses, there will be all these sites and on social media, they'll publish alternative angles of the catch that wasn't. Wait, Santonio was out of bounds or wait, Deion Waters hit Ginobili out of bounds or he was in bounds. So you could play that game forever that we really shouldn't have lost. Now, some, some losses are blowouts and there's no way to argue that, but I'll tell you what there is. To nurse this feeling, what should be this feeling of loss, there are all these message boards, a like-minded community that immediately goes to the next prize recruit out of high school or the possible free agent signing or the next coaching move. Wait till next year? No, this is 2016. Next year is now. And the idea of waiting, that's so over. Now, of course, beyond sports, people experience the loss of a job or the loss of a loved one. Only we don't, not nearly as much. Do people lose jobs? People are transitioned or people move on from one job to another. And I don't mean this just in terms of phrasing that we don't say you lost your job. It's the gig economy. People have a couple of part-time jobs and that equals a full-time job. And if you lose one, you just replace it. And there are diminished expectations that a job is a career. There's just less and less of the experience of I once had a job, now I am fired, and now I have to deal with that. Well, what about death? Of course, people die, but fewer than ever have been, and family sizes are smaller than ever. I mean, death used to be a large part of life. Most adults had a sibling or child that died in the 19th century. That's not true now. Death has receded, and this is a great thing, of course, death has receded as a omnipresent part of American life, that's great, but it means we don't have a sense of loss. We're not around loss that much. Americans just aren't like Europeans. They're not like South Americans. 
Americans, Americans deny loss. We rebrand loss as an opportunity or a chance to grow. We don't lose, we survive, or we tell ourselves we do. And of course, a lot of that is just papering over or denying the fact that we really are losing. But if we do deny it, it means that loss does not feel like loss. And we don't know how to act when the black and white fact, the empirical evidence is that we have suffered a loss. And the reason isn't unfairness or a rigged system or media spin. It's because loss happens and you need to deal with it. Except losses seem to so rarely happen and therefore dealing with them is the last thing that people know how to do. And that's it for today's show, and that's it for an era. I'm going to do the credits in reverse order. I'll start with Andy Bowers, who as chief content officer for the Panoply Network, has to bear with the sad news. Bear the bear, bear news. Ah, ah indeed. And then there's Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, whose enthusiasm today might unavoidably flag a little bit. It's time for some vexillitiousness. And let me name another producer before I give you the news, Mary Wilson. Names in the news. And then there's Andrea, Andrea Salenzi, that voice, that angelic voice that you've been hearing. Andrea is moving on. She is going full-time into the jingle game on a professional basis. She, no, no, she's not. She's going to get a show of her own on the Panoply Network. It will be a 12-part series exactly in her wheelhouse of interests. It will focus on the bear on the flag of California. That's what she's fascinated in. No, no, it's not, and she's not. That's my forcing my interests upon her, which she was a good sport about. Let me just tell you one fact about Andrea. It's an actual fact. Did you hear how it sounded when she did those jingles like she wasn't on the real mic? She was, you know, chimed in like she was standing in a studio next door. Well, she did that purposefully. She added that in post to make it sound a little more distressed because she was going for the Roz on Frasier thing where Roz used to chime in from the control room. It is that level of detail and execution that she brought and will continue to bring with her actual new podcast on Panoply. Watch this space. She'll probably be back as a guest to talk about the new venture. And let us say that she was indispensable to this venture, this, what is it, 502-episode venture. She barely made it out alive, but thank you, Andrea. Without you, we literally could not say the gist. Um, Peru, de Peru, du Peru. And thanks for everything. <laughs>